What fuels our next step when the journey is daunting, facing seemingly insurmountable odds? When failure has been our companion, why do some choose grit when others quit? The capacity for grit is what the writers of Scripture called endurance or perseverance. Perseverance is the shape of a heart that's increasingly able to honour its commitments, live out its calling, and rise above the hard to reach the hope. Some call it grit, some resilience. Whatever you call it, it's simply the shape of a heart that refuses to quit hoping that God's best is yet to come. It's the grit in your soul that finds traction for blessing in the most difficult circumstances. And there is a pathway to these gritty blessings that will lead to a resilient life. Jesus once shared them in a mountaintop moment. Eight Steps to Building a Resilient Life Ann Voskamp shares an amazing don't-quit-grit story. When Cliff Young ran his first ultra-marathon, who ever thought there would be such a thing? He was anything but young. He was a 61-year-old farmer who showed up in overalls and work boots. I'm 61. I hate to love that image in my mind. In fact, no one even suspected that he was a runner until he picked up his race number and stood near the starting line. Australia was hosting one of the most grueling races in the world, an ultramarathon from Sydney to Melbourne. It's a bit short of 544 miles. My goodness, that's like running to New York City and back, then doing two marathons and then finishing up with a two-mile cool down. Everyone there, the press, the athletes, the crowd, they thought he was plum crazy out of his mind and they told him, you're crazy. There's no way you're going to finish this race. To which he replied, yes, I can. See, I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or tractors, and the whole time I was growing up, whenever the storms would roll in, I'd have to go out and round up the sheep. We had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres. Sometimes I would have to run those sheep for two or three days. It took a long time, but I'd always catch them. I believe I can run this race. As the race started, the regular runners quickly left Cliff behind. Cliff didn't even run properly. His arms kind of hung straight down to his sides with his back upright, his feet barely leaving the ground. He just kind of shuffled along. Anyone who knew the race knew that it took about five days to finish. You run about 18 hours a day, sleep six hours, and then repeat. The the thing is, Cliff didn't know the race, didn't know how he was supposed to run. He just knew that he had to run. At one point, he said that as he ran, he imagined trying to keep ahead of a storm. At another point, he said that he ran to keep death from catching him. When the morning of the second day came, Everyone was in for another surprise. Not only was Cliff still in the race, he had continued jogging all night, never stopped. When darkness came, let me say that again, when darkness came, Cliff just kept running, wouldn't quit. And Voskamp wrote, for 18 hours, the racers blow down the road and old Cliff just shuffles on behind. Come the pitch black of night, the runners in their ergonomic Nikes lay down by the roadside because that's the plan to win an ultra marathon, 544 straight miles, 18 hours of running, six hours of sleeping, rinse and repeat for five or more days. The darkness falls, she wrote, runners sleep. But through the darkness, a 61-year-old man far behind keeps shuffling on. And all I can think, Voskamp says, is the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Cliff Young runs on through the night, and there is a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not matter. master it. Darkness and light, persevering grit, overcoming deep darkness, never give up, don't quit. 
Even when the darkness comes, don't quit. Cliff Grit kept running till he had hit the finish line. In fact, he set a course record. Never stopped. But it's hard, isn't it? A lot of you listening to me, you know it's hard. When the darkness comes in and unpacks its baggage for a long stay, whether that's rejection, the storms of betrayal or disappointment or loss or grief, loneliness, hardship, deep darkness. And you know what? When Jesus showed up uh, around the Sea of Galilee all those centuries ago, for the people who were the faces in the crowds that were gathering around Jesus, for them it was a time of deep, 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 deep darkness. While some Jewish leaders experienced an element of prosperity and security, most of them were politically, religiously, and economically oppressed by the Roman government. High taxes, religious restrictions, crucifixions were common. It was not just Jesus. Most people knew someone who had been crucified. And then Jesus shows up. And remember the report from the last part of Matthew chapter 4. We looked at the last couple of messages. Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease, exhibiting the power of God, and telling everyone about the blessings of heaven breaking in on earth. And the news spread. And crowds gathered, large crowds from all over the region, people who had been broken and experienced loss and given up hope, people who wondered if God was gone and how far away they were from the blessed life. See, I think Jesus was was just trying to say to them, you're not so far. You're not so far. You're not as far as you think from the blessings of heaven. And I know that sounds incredibly Pollyanna, head in the sand, unrealistic optimism, like, come on, Jesus, just look around. It feels like far. It feels like far to us today, too. I mean, if we were to develop our own set of Beatitudes, they would be so different from these. Blessed are the rich, for they'll be secure and comfortable. Blessed are the influencers, for they'll have many followers. Blessed are those who take first place, for many will think well of them. Blessed are the politically powerful, for they will have their way. Blessed are the fit and the healthy, for they shall live long and wear whatever they please. Blessed are those at the top of the mountain, for their kingdom will be bigger than mine. And then Jesus comes along, and it says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him. They gathered around him and he began to teach them. And and remember, the crowd hears him, but he's, he's speaking to his disciples. He began to teach them and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And and basically what Jesus is saying to this ragtag crowd who is intimate with brokenness and suffering, grief and loneliness, powerlessness and hopelessness is, listen, listen, you're, you're not so far. You're closer than you think. Because there's another way to blessing. In fact, Jesus would say it's the only way to blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. So let's take a, a bit of time again and define the path. But before we dive in, let me, let me just say this up front. Mourning is inevitable, but it's not forever. Mourning is inevitable, but it's not forever. Author Scott Peck observes that people will go to unbelievable lengths to avoid experiencing pain and discomfort in marriage and parenting the marketplace, almost every area of life, which again shows how radical 
this call to the blessed life really is. So often we dream of attaining comfort and security, pain-free lives. The end of suffering is the ultimate mark of the blessed life. And so we go about crafting a a pain-free existence. We avoid suffering of every type. We craft comfort zones, preferably devoid of people who might cause suffering or even just remind us of the discomfort of the doubts and loss and hurt that we're trying to stuff down deep inside. But listen, Jesus is not saying that we should love loss. He's not saying that grieving is preferred over joy. He came that our joy might be full. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not saying that every bad thing is a good thing in disguise. Just enjoy it. No, he's simply being honest and realistic because he knows that mourning is inevitable. None of us will escape this life without being touched by loss. And if, and if we haven't been yet, someone we know has been. It's, it's inevitable. No distinction between race, creed, or color. Like the character Hugh, I love this story, Hugh in Annie Dillard's novel, The Living. She describes a funeral service where Hugh listens in as the preacher, Pastor Taws, prays at the graveside. And the preacher prays, oh, death, where is thy sting? And as he hears it, Hugh thinks, just about everywhere, Pastor, since you asked, just about everywhere. Mourning is inevitable, but it's not forever. It's not. That's the message of every funeral sermon I, I think I've ever preached. The best is yet to come. There is a day coming when death will be defeated and mourning will be no more because every loss will be redeemed. And that's what we celebrate actually in communion today. That's the message of the cross. It reminds me of a moment in the third book of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. If you've read it, you know that at the end of this story, things just kind of keep getting worse and worse and worse until the darkness has completely drained our hero's hope. But they persevere. They won't quit. And finally, finally, the uh, the finally redefining moment of victory comes and, and the quest is won and they're united. And, and Sam Gamgee ends up running into his friend Gandalf, whom he thought was dead, He thought he saw him die, and he looks up at him with wonder in his eyes, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but I thought I had died too. And then he asks this amazing question that goes to the very heart of what Christ did on the cross in defeating death and and letting loose the power of resurrection. He He says to Gandalf, is every sad thing now going to come untrue? Mourning is inevitable, but it's not forever. One day every sad thing will become untrue. And what do we do in the meantime? We persevere because while every bad thing is not a good thing, God can bring good things out of every bad thing. John Orberg once said, if you ask people who don't believe in God why they don't believe in God, the number one reason they'll give will be the suffering of humanity. But if you ask people who believe in God when they grew the most spiritually, the number one answer will be in the moments that they experienced suffering. We call that a crucible. A crucible is a season of suffering when our hearts are refined, they're transformed, we're shaped for glory. The very story of our lives at times is rewritten in the crucibles of the hard times, the pain and the difficulty. During my dissertation on leadership development, I interviewed leaders and and one question I asked was, tell me about a time when you grew in your leadership like never before, catalytic growth. And almost without fail, each one, each one talked about a hard time, a crucible. Times of brokenness and suffering, mourning and and loss. This idea of a crucible is woven throughout Scripture. In Proverbs 17, 3, it says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord refines the heart. 
In Acts 14, 22, <laughs> we're encouraged to endure, to, to have grit with the words, we must go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God. But a crucible is never meant to be the end of the story. If it's not good, he's not done. So don't quit because ultimately, don't quit grit leads to hopeful transformation. A transformation of hope, a transformation of character. Blessed are those who mourn. You realize Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of the world, he mourned, right? In fact, we read in Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4, he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. And you remember the story of Jesus when his good friend Lazarus died, led to one of the, the shortest but most profound verses in Scripture, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Now, now let me just back up for a moment and say this. Times that should lead to mourning are inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. But mourning is not inevitable because while all of us go through broken times of loss and suffering and loneliness, we don't all mourn. Sometimes we keep that sadness all bottled up inside of us. We, we may have sadness from years ago. Some have sadness that, that, that's so far back you've forgotten what, what, what brought it about, but you've never mourned. You've never let it out. You've never got out here what we have in here. And when that happens, we, we miss the comfort. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, he used the word penthos. It refers especially to the external signs of mourning, external signs of mourning. In Jesus' day, it was sackcloth and ashes. It was sitting Shiva, which is a, a days upon days long, sitting together in, in silence and mourning. All that, all, the only thing coming out of people's throats, their voices, just cries. That, that's what they were doing for Lazarus when Jesus came. And, and penthos is one of the most intense Greek words for mourning. It's funeral mourning. It's passionate lament, a desperate ache of the soul. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, I don't know. I think one of his messages for day, today is simply, blessed are the heartbroken criers. Blessed are the criers. Blessed are those who get out here what they feel in here. Blessed are the brokenhearted, those with the faith to dive into the loss rather than try to hide it or ignore it. See, I want us to be the kind of church where it's okay to not be okay, but still offers hope that one day it'll be better than okay. See, if we want people to discover the blessed life, we, we've got to be a safe place for people to mourn. We, we cannot try to live lives that suggest Christians never fail, never fall, and never hurt. It's like sometimes it seems like we're thinking, man, if we're sad, shoot, that just means we don't trust God enough. Christians are always happy, so we got to be happy at church. And if we're not, then either we won't go or we'll pretend. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. Listen, it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel deeply. It's okay to mourn. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love suffers Love suffers long. Love suffers long and is still kind. Here's the deal. I, I mentioned this before, but I don't think these eight blessings that we call the Beatitudes are, are just eight unrelated blessings. Like, just pick one and dive in. I think they outline a path, a process 
that ultimately leads to a life of such thriving that it's like a light in the darkness. So here's what we have so far. Desperate hearts lead to broken hearts. That's beatitude number one. Broken hearts lead to tears. So the question is, what breaks my heart? What breaks my heart? I'm, I'm going to take a bit of a turn here for just a moment because we, we have to understand that the brokenness that, that should bring tears from our hearts is not just a mourning for our personal loss. That, that's, all, that's part of it, for sure. But it's not only that. It's also a grieving for the brokenness all around me, the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of my neighbors, my family, my school, my, my workplace, my brokenness. It, it's a mourning for my brokenness. In Psalm 119, verse 136, the the psalmist writes, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Has that ever caused us to mourn? Have you ever mourned? Have you ever had streams of tears from your eyes because God's ways are not followed? Have you ever mourned for your own sin? Do we mourn our loss of comfort more than we mourn the brokenness next door? Blessed are those who mourn. Have you ever cried because of just a a moment of feeling God's broken heartbeat for a neighbor that turned her back on Jesus and just doesn't know how desperately she needs him? Just ask yourself this question. Do we cry too much for things that matter little and cry too little for things that matter much? I don't know. Perhaps we should pay more attention to our tears or our lack of tears. They may tell us something about the deep places of our hearts. They, they flow, I think, out of what matters. And sometimes, sometimes I, I believe tears are the whisper of the Spirit of God reminding us of what matters to his heart. I'm reminded of, a, of another picture of the tears of Jesus. He's, he's heading into Jerusalem just days before the cross, and, and he knows what's coming. He, he knows by now where he's headed. This is a, a Palm Sunday moment, so the crowd, like the crowd in Matthew 4, is over the top with joy. It's like Rome is going to get it. Jesus is king. But it says in Luke 19, verses 41 through 42, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. What is it that brings unexpected tears to Jesus' eyes? He's mourning a broken city that missed its moment. What gets our tears? I wonder perhaps one reason why revival has yet to come is that we cry much for things that matter little and we cry little for things that matter much. May God break our hearts for those who need him. John Piper, a pastor, once said in a Palm Sunday sermon, pray that God would give you tears. There's so much pain in the world. There's so much suffering far from you and near you. Pray that God would help you be tenderly moved. When you die and stand before Christ, Piper said, and he asks you, how did you feel about the suffering around you? What will you say? See, Jesus felt enough compassion for Jerusalem to weep, and he wept for every broken person in Jerusalem. He, he wept for their loss. He, he wept for people broken by sexual sin and financial greed. He wept for people who didn't love their neighbors and hearts filled with unforgiving bitterness. He, he wept for people missing God's dreams for their lives. And, and I, I don't know, I, I think some of us, maybe in our prayer life, we just need to start asking God for tears. There's so much brokenness in the world. We need to pray that God would fill our hearts with compassion. 
because this is how Jesus was sent. If, if we want to be followers of Jesus, we need to be sent as he was sent. He was sent in compassion to bring comfort to the world, not to make us comfortable, but to bring comfort. He comes with tears for you, for me, for us, for the world. You, you have his heart. That's how he came and how he still comes. So here's another question. If broken is the last thing we want to be, then mourning is the last thing we want to do. But what of my deepest desires, what of the greatest blessings that I long for could be met on the other side of my greatest loss? I mean, if that's true, wouldn't that truth, wouldn't that bring comfort? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think Paul might have had Jesus' path of blessings in mind when he wrote the book of Romans. And I love what he says in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, but we also glory, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, grit. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that part of the comfort? We find comfort in transformative hope, this hope that changes the shape of our, our hearts, our character. But, but there's more. I, I believe that when we open our hearts up to God, he pours out his love, especially in those difficult moments of mourning. He pours out his love into our hearts by his Spirit and we find comfort from God's love. Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now, mourning is not blessing. No one wants to mourn. Mourning is the path to a blessing that comes in the midst of grief. Mourning is what requires the don't quit grit that leads to the blessing of comfort, a comfort from the very heart of God. I really appreciate Stephen Faith's willingness to share a bit of their gritty blessing story with us of the death, the suicide of their son, Matt. Take a moment and listen as they share. think that, you know, in the year and a half, almost two years soon, um, we have found comfort. It's never going to be all better for us, but um, definitely have been comforted in, in various ways. I think that compassion that Matthew had has really hit me hard. Um, just thinking about how compassionate he was has made us even more so compassionate for people who are going through struggles and going through depression and going through anxiety. We've had a lot of people over the last year and a half or so do really kind things for us and that just touches you. Like here's another person on this earth and we all suffer, 
But if we can reach out to another person in kindness, it makes a difference. A few weeks ago, I was going through the checkout in Trader Joe's and I always ask the, them, um, you know, what's your favorite product? And the person who was waiting on me told me his favorite product. And I said, oh, that was my son Matt's favorite product. And he said, oh, was? And I said, well, he passed away by suicide. And right there at Trader Joe's, the young man said to me, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, and offered comfort and then talked to me about a friend and a cousin who had died by suicide. And I thought right here in Trader Joe's in the checkout line, I'm connected with this person who in suffering. And um, I think that there's good in that and I think the connections always also bring me hope. You know when the stone was rolled away when the um, ladies went to the tomb with all their spices and they said you know he's not here so easily we forget that that stone was rolled away and it's that is what our whole belief is grounded in is that he did raise from the dead and for that fact that's where I know Matt I know that's who he's with and sometimes I think it's so easy to forget that that simple thing that hey that stone was rolled away let's not forget that You know, sometimes, of course, we feel angry. And there was one particular time that I was very angry with God that he didn't stop this. Because you think he could have. And I was like, there's so many promises in the Bible that God's going to keep us safe. God's going to keep our children safe. That, um, you know, he's going to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. There's a psalm, I think it's Psalm 12 or 11, that said, God says, I will stand up and I will set him in the safety for which he longs. And I would pray that for Matt, that he would feel safe from anxiety. And I was saying to God that morning, you know, you didn't come through on your promise to me. And then, kind of like how the Spirit will put an idea in your head or... Um, I just had, I don't know how to explain it, like this thought kind of filled me, like, yeah, well, I've, I've made those promises, I keep my promises, and it's not the end yet. Suffering just makes you think about eternity, or makes me think about eternity. Um, you know, it's like this doorway into being reminded that life here isn't all we get, um, there's an eternity where um, God promises things are going to be way better. I'm looking forward to that. You know, there, I guess for me too, there's lots of sadness. We feel sad. Every day I feel sad. People say to you, well, how are you? And I think, well, I'm really kind of sad. But there's also joy. You know, there's moments of happiness too.
there is joy. Even in the midst of the difficulty, there is joy. We find comfort from the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles. And and here's the deal, final point. When we find comfort, we become comfort givers. There's a connection, like like Faith said, where we become blessing bringers and the people around us begin to experience the love of God flowing through our broken hearts. We, We can't become comfort givers if we're never comfort receivers, but when we get it, we'll give it. And man, it's such a blessing. Terry Mock, a Bethel prof, shared a letter from a guy who had zero interest in Jesus or church or spiritual things. He lived next to a Christian, and they had a pretty casual relationship. Friends, you know, talks over the back fence, borrowing tools, lawnmowers, stuff like that. And then they discovered that his wife had cancer. She died three months later. And later he, he wrote this letter to Terry. He wrote, I was in total despair. I went through the funeral like I was in a trance, and and after the service, I went to the path along the river, and I walked all night, but I did not walk alone. He said in the letter, my neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He, He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. And when the sun finally came up over the river, he came up to me and said, hey, let's go get some breakfast. He wrote in his letter to Terry, I go to church now, (laughs) my neighbor's church. Because a religion that can produce that kind of caring and love that my neighbor showed me is something that I want to know more about. I want to be like that. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. Do you know why people lined up to see Jesus? It wasn't just the miracles. Do you know why they traveled for miles by foot just to be near him? Why every time you find Jesus in the Gospels, you find a crowd? It's because they had never been loved like that. Before we go to communion today, which is a remembrance of the amazing love and comfort of God to us through Christ. You realize God experienced loss, Christ mourned, and and the Spirit brought this amazing comfort in the midst of our troubles. And and so I just want to take some time to pray. I want us to take some time to pray. And and, and here's what I, I want you to do. If you feel like this message was for you because you have some heaviness in your heart, there's sadness in your past, you're, you're mourning a loss or mourning sin, maybe mourning brokenness in and around you, whatever it is, however far back it goes, it doesn't matter. If more than anything, you know that what you need is some comfort, I'm just going to ask you, wherever you're at, what would you stand? You may feel like you are far from blessing, but you're not so far. You're closer than you feel. And we want to pray for you. And then we'll go to communion, this reminder of the brokenhearted love of Jesus.